Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The following podcast contains adult content, explicit language, and sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised. And it contains murder. Lots and lots of murder. You stinking bastard. People tell me, hey, you're going to go die and go to hell. I'm from that one one. We're through emergency. Oh, this is Sandy. We're pretty one one in the chest, one in the head. Fired by Detective Sergeant Roger Rogerson. I was uh, branching out. That's when the cannibalism started, eating of the heart and uh, the arm muscle. Oh, I wear a male car with his hands to a coffee table and just pull it out of his backside. Carl Williams is a wobbly bottom little Cherub of face, cherub of face, little boy who would do, who would do, whose life would be. I harm someone each time I kill someone to be an enormous amount of uh, uh, Especially at first, uh, enormous amount of uh, horror, guilt, remorse afterwards. But then that impulse to do it again would come back even stronger. In 1996 in Melbourne, a 13-year-old boy became one of the youngest people in Australia to be found guilty of murder. Now, we can't use his real name as the courts have suppressed his details and sealed his records, so we're going to call him Sam West. From an early age, Sam's life seemed to be destined to be one of poverty, criminality and misery. But could Sam make his own fate and escape where he had come from to a better future? In a series of bad associations and even worse decisions, teenage Sam's aspirations would come undone after attempting to rob taxi driver Peter Coe. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. We're a comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser known crime stories from Australia. And indeed around the globe. As a comedy true crime podcast, we use humour to lighten up horrifying stories, but never at the expense of the victims or their loved ones. If you think comedy has no business being associated with tragedy, then Bloody Murder may not be the podcast for you. We're recording separately again this week due to the social isolation rules, so apologies if we sound a tad different to our usual setup. I haven't seen you in so long, I'm pretty sure you're a figment of my imagination. (laughs) If that's true, could you make carbs not fattening and alcohol not give me hangovers? Yes, I could, but I choose not to. (sighs) Now, before we commence our sordid tales, we'd like to remind you that this episode is brought to you by our wonderful and generous patrons. We've had quite a few new ones join our new fancy Patreon program, which we will thank individually after our story. If you'd like to become a patron, go to our website for details. That's bloodymurderpodcast.com. 
As a patron, you have access to loads of other episodes, including our kaleidoscopic and scatological first season (laughs) and ad-free versions of all our regular episodes. As well as exclusive patron-only monthly episodes where we read the room and subliminally insert pictures of wombats into our murder stories. (laughs) Levels above $5 receive stickers and handmade Barney badges. And of course, you're automatically entered into the draw for our monthly giveaways. All right, Tara. Let's get murdery. Oh, Barney, I'm already there. This is a story about the Australian criminal justice system, the family and Supreme Court, some deadbeat parents and some kids that slip through the cracks. It is also the story of a cab driver who was trying just to earn a living and a young teenage boy with no direction. In Chapter 1 of The Book of Sam, an unwanted baby reluctantly dropped into this world in September 1981. The courts describe Sam West's father as violent and criminal and his mother as poor and battling. She had been thrown out of her childhood home at 14 when her own mother had fallen apart as a result of mental illness and extreme poverty. It seemed that his grim past was doomed to repeat itself. Sam had an overwhelmed and unstable mother and a deadbeat pisshead dad as well as four older siblings. Money was tighter than a fish's proverbial and food was scarce. Despite these bleak beginnings, friends of the West family remember Sam as a sweet child with a good heart. But poor little Sam was mostly ignored and craved attention. He had to fight for love from both his stressed-out mother and alcoholic criminal father. In 1987, when Sam was only six years old, his father just up and left. What, did he go to the shop for milk and heroin and just never come back? Something like that. This left Sam's mother in dire financial straits with six mouths to feed. On the verge of a breakdown and unable to care for her children, Sam was placed in state care along with his two brothers. This made Sam's young, already shitty life much harder. If you look at the criminal statistics of state wards, you will see they are alarmingly overrepresented in the criminal justice system. What followed for Sam was a sharp drop into petty crime and violence. But let's not romanticise Sam into a sweet little Dickensian pickpocket. Nah, he wasn't singing kicky songs dressed in a tatty little vest and top hat like the Artful Dodger. No, he wasn't. Sam was a very unhappy, damaged and lonely little boy with no one in his corner, no one to be his champion. During a two-year period, he absconded from care 26 times. After a while, police simply refused to look for him. One thing Sam did have going for him, though, was he was charming and could make people laugh. Journalist Kate Legg would later describe Sam in the newspaper The Australian as good-looking with jet-black hair and dark brown eyes. Whilst living in a group home, Sam made friends with a 14-year-old boy. Let's call him Ben, as, like Sam, we're not allowed to use his real name. Around this time, Sam started attending a Catholic school in Preston, and a Marist brother took him under his wing. But Sam was already too far gone and under the bad influence of his BFF, Ben. The pair engaged in all manner of hijinks, capers and schemes. And, you know, actual crimes. Yeah, those too. Around this time, Sam met Jane, also not her real name. 15-year-old Jane was two years older than Sam and was separated from her family in in in-state care too. But she had a history of behavioural problems. Sam and Jane fell hard for each other. Their teenage love was as intense as teenage love can be, and they were soon spending nights together. Meanwhile, Sam and Ben skipped school and got up to mischief. 
They robbed cars at the Faulkner Cemetery while mourners visited their loved ones' graves. They also indulged in a spot of drug dealing and a few cheeky arsons. But a combination of boredom and a lack of money and guidance meant their crime spree was about to escalate. On Monday, January 30th, 1995, Melburnians were enjoying a coolish summer evening as the past few nights had been extremely warm and sticky. Sickness Street in Preston, located in Melbourne's north, is lined with weatherboard houses and low picket fences. At the end of this quiet suburban street, before it winds around into Belgrave Street, lies a small, overgrown park. It's a bit of a shit park, Tara. It is. It's, um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's named La Hinch Reserve. The grass is patchy and mostly dirt. The swings and slides are covered with spray-painted obscenities and graffiti. Teenage knuckleheads have tagged every viable surface with signatures such as Boys on Dope, Mustafa Rules and Pussy Squad. I've never understood it. Pussy Squad? That's my tag. The asphalt in front of the park is laid with donuts, not the ones you can eat. No, no, more's a pity. No, I'm talking about circles of burnt rubber tyre marks. It's a popular pastime of suburban teenage petrol heads who try and impress their girlfriends or just to get a cheap thrill from the squeal of the tyres as they burn rubber. I've never understood that either. Sam had been seeing his girlfriend Jane earlier in the night. After Jane went home, he went looking for his BFF Ben. After Sam and Ben had spent the last of their money on cheeseburgers and strawberry thick shakes at McDonald's, Ben suggested that they go and jump a taxi driver. Strawberry thick shakes? Oh, no. I was thinking going to jump a taxi driver deserves a bigger oh no, Tara. It does. Oh, no. Ben explained to Sam, some mates of mine had done it before and it worked. He gave Sam one of two fold-up knives he had. At the Gower Street taxi rank in Preston, they selected the driver of a north suburban cab who appeared to be in his 50s. They both climbed in the back seat with Ben behind the driver. Sam told the driver to go towards Heidelberg. When the car reached La Hinch Reserve in Signa Street, the driver stopped. It was 12.25am. In his statement to the Preston police soon afterwards, the cab driver said the youth sitting behind him suddenly pulled his forehead back against his headrest. Ben held the knife to his throat from behind and said, Give me your money, cunt. The driver would later tell the police, Then I saw in the corner of my right eye a knife blade three to four inches long pushed into the side of my neck. The taxi driver told the teenagers, I have kids like you and I want to get back to them. He went on to say, I then saw another knife blade six to seven inches out of the corner of my eye being pushed into the other side of my neck. Ben took around $70 from the driver's left shirt pocket, then leant forward and grabbed the coin dispenser, which held about $60. He then got out of the cab, walked to the driver's window, placed his knife against the terrified driver's cheek and said, More money, more money. The driver said he had no more. Sam got out of the taxi too and both the boys ran off through the park. It was all over in a couple of minutes. After running through the park, Sam and Ben went into the old Gowerville Primary School where they divided up their ill-gotten gains. Not wanting to carry around the knives and coins, Ben put them in a bag which he hid near some flats in Plenty Road. Some of the cash stolen from the cabbie was used to buy more McDonald's. Yum! After spending the night in the doorway of a portable classroom at West Preston Primary School, rather than returning to their group homes, the boys went back to get the bag, but it was gone. Don't you hate it when the proceeds of your crime become someone else's proceeds from a crime against you? Yes! 
The boys blew the rest of the stolen cash at a go-kart track, but driving around in circles in stupid little cars can only amuse you for so long. Three days after robbing the taxi, Ben went to Preston Market and brought a Best Defence brand hunting knife from one of the stalls for the princely sum of $8. Well, I'm not too happy imagining how many teenage boys are walking around with $8 hunting knives. The next morning, he tracked down Sam. They discussed their finances, or lack of. Sam told Ben, Jesus, expensive having a girlfriend. Oh yeah, 15-year-old Jane was a total diva, constantly demanding that he buy her diamonds. Well, happy meals don't buy themselves, Tara. Oh, lucky knives were so cheap, huh? It was then decided that Ben and Sam would do the same thing as Monday night. Eat McDonald's. No, the other thing, the crime. Oh, crime. Oh, no. But this time it was Sam's turn to hold up the driver. At 6.30pm, Jane arrived at Sam's place and he told her the plan. About 10pm, Sam and Ben left the unit where Sam lived in a group home and headed toward Preston Taxi Rank. Sam was wearing jeans, a camel-coloured jacket and brown Windsor Smith boots. He was carrying a bag with a change of clothes, including runners and his school sports uniform. Sam explained to Ben if the police picked him up after the robbery, he would have changed his clothes and the description would not fit. Smart. Mm, Cluey. They were both armed with knives. It had been a stinking hot Melbourne summer day. Just after 11pm, it was 27 degrees Celsius or 80 degrees Fahrenheit. The boys lay on the grass opposite the Gower Street taxi rank for about an hour. They didn't like the look of the first few drivers they saw because they were young men and they didn't want to struggle. Finally, they chose 41-year-old Peter Coe driving a yellow EB Falcon Silvertop taxi. Peter Coe was a regular night shift driver who had clocked on at 6.06pm that Saturday. Peter was a softly spoken man who acted in amateur theatre productions and studied social sciences at Monash University. He sounds like he'd be interesting to talk to. Yeah, from what I read about Peter Coe, he was a great guy. Like their last robbery, Sam and Ben slipped into the back seats of the taxi, only this time Sam was behind the driver. Sam gave directions while Ben made small talk and asked Cabby Peter how business had been. When they got to the shitty park at Singer Street, Sam said, that's it, the house on the corner. It was 11.15pm. Sam got out his knife and as soon as the cab stopped, he reached around and held the blade to Peter Coe's throat and yelled, give me the money, cunt! But terrified Peter did not give Sam the money. Ben began to get out of the taxi, but Peter took his foot off the brake, causing the taxi to lurch forward and Ben was thrown back into the back seat. Peter said, no, 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 stop it, don't hurt me. The car slowly rolled toward the corner of Belgrove and Singer Streets and hit a power pole. Ben attempted to reach over the middle console to grab Peter's money container, but the cab driver punched his hands away. Ben gave up and jumped out of the taxi. He looked over at Sam to see him plunge his knife into the left side of Peter Coe's neck. Ben grabbed his bag and ran off towards Bell Street. He turned back and yelled to Sam, Hurry up! Let's go! At the same time, someone came out of a nearby house yelling, Stop! Leave him alone! Ben and Sam crossed Bell Street, jumped a fence and ran into a school. Scaling another fence, they made their way through the back streets until Sam dumped his bloody knife under a bush. Panting, Sam started changing out of his clothes when he said to Ben, Oh, fuck, I've dropped one of my runners. After the quick costume change, they walked toward home. At Croxton Park Railway Station, Sam threw his remaining runner onto the roof of the train station. 
The Silvertop Taxi's company computer in Carlton showed that Peter Coe stamped his foot on the alarm button on the left of his brake pedal at 11.20pm. Almost instantly, an alarm flashed up on the computer screen of the dispatcher. Known in the taxi business as an M13, this alarm signal is only used when drivers are in extreme peril. As well as alerting headquarters, the footswitch also activates a hidden microphone in the taxi. A night shift supervisor at Silvertop grabbed a pair of headphones when he heard the alarm and listened to Peter Coe softly say, Help me, help me. He also heard a loud, what he assumed to be female, voice scream. It sounded like it was coming from the back seat. He immediately phoned the police. A sergeant and two constables from Heidelberg Police Station were returning from a pub fracas. They had just passed within about 70 metres of Peter Coe's taxi. As they drove down Bell Street, they saw Sam and Ben run across the road. They watched the two climb over a fence into the school. Thinking it looked pretty suspicious, they were about to check it out when they got a call from headquarters. A taxi driver had been attacked in Belgrove Street. The three cops rushed to the scene. En route, the sergeant radioed that they had seen two suspects. Two constables from Preston went to search around the old Galville Primary School where Sam and Ben had scaled the fence, but the boys had made good their escape and were in the wind. We'll be back with more of The Book of Sam after this. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. So, grandfather time over there. What time is it? <laughs> fuck you. Hey. It's hey, fuck baby. you o'clock. Hey, baby. What time is it? It's true crime now time. True Crime Nerd Time is an opportunity for you, our listeners, to give us your recommendations for anything true crime related. It can be a book, movie, TV series, graphic novel, board game, song, or just about anything that has scratched your true crime itch. Are you itchy? You can record your voice, just do it on your phone, we'll play it, or write it, and we'll read it out. Stop trying to make me laugh. <laughs> and we have one here and we have one here from Flibberty Gibberty. <laughs> What? <laughs> Flibberty Gibberty. And they write because I'm not sure if they're a girl or a boy. Oh, they might not um, be either. 
they might appreciate just they. Mm-hmm. And they write, Tara and Barney, I wanted to give a shout out to an amazing podcast that vaguely reminds me of your unabashedly crude but funny, smart and quick humour. Oh. Okay, enough ass kissing, right? No, no, not nearly no, enough. I liberty, liberty. A little bit, little bit more. Paco Rob. Yeah, yeah. Flippity Gibbity goes on to write, I only began listening to true crime podcasts because my nephew recommended Case File to me. That's, um, what's that guy's name? Casey McCasefile? You know um, what? You know how he's anonymous? If you just Google it, it's really easy to find out. <laughs> yeah, it is. Oh, uh, yeah, her nephew, because um, he knows I'm a complete true crime nerd. I, of course, loved it, but when done, I wanted something new to binge. I'm not sure how I fell into listening to Hollywood Crime Scene with Rachel Fisher and Desi Jedekin, but they are awesome. They are a comedy true crime podcast and are so funny and goofy, but do tell a great true crime story, all based on L.A. or Hollywood and showbiz true crime. See, I'm really into that kind of genre, so I'm definitely going to check this out. FYI, I stumbled upon your podcast when wondering if there was a true crime podcast that focused on a murder case that I was tangentially involved with. The case being number 64, Cleophus Prince Jr. Ooh, that was nasty. He was a he was a serial killer and a sexual sadist. I remember yeah, that very You wrote well. that one, Tara. That was one of your ones. Yeah. One of your ones. I, that's kind of my thing. The first young woman he murdered was my neighbour, Tiffany Page Schultz. Oh, wow. The detectives believe I was the last person to see her alive as I was on my way to a college class. I walked by her as she was sunning herself on the balcony outside her front doorway. I ended up being subpoenaed to testify in a trial. It was pretty creepy, but of course we were very glad when he was convicted and sent to prison. Oh God, absolutely. Those few months when he was running loose in and around our neighbourhood were pretty awful. We actually ended up moving to another area of San Diego because of his propensity to target young women in the in that Claremont yeah, neighbourhood. Yeah, yeah. There you go. I hope you give Hollywood crime scene a listen. Thanks, Australians are awesome. <laughs> Yours truly, Flibbity Gibbity, true crime nerd. Oh, that was nice. Thank you, Flibbity Gibbity. Thanks, Flibbity Gibbity. I love saying your name. Oh, yeah. It just feels good in your mouth. It really does. That podcast is Hollywood Crime Scene with Rachel Fisher and Desi Jenikin, the details of which will be in the show notes. Do you think Flibbity Gibbity might also like be like a doctor, like Dr. Flibbity Gibbity? Or perhaps um, Judge Flibbity Gibbity? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Professor, maybe. Professor of neuroscience, flippity-gibbity. <laughs> I'd like to think so. If you'd like to submit to True Crime Nerd Time, visit our website, bloodymurderpodcast.com, for instructions on how to contribute. And please do, because we're running out. Well, yeah, you know, Tracy Stewart, yeah. has she has a life. She can't write 90% of them. <laughs> That's right. I am your host, J.D. Horror. And this is True Crime Horror Story, a true crime podcast designed like an anthology horror movie. It's definitely not for the faint of heart, and it's not played for laughs. Join us on January 30th, 2020, for the debut of Season 2. If you thought Season 1 was extreme, get ready, because you haven't heard anything yet. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Subscribe now wherever podcasts can be consumed and check out our website at www.truecrimehorrorstory.com True Crime Horror Story Sometimes truth is more brutal fiction 
So 2020 hasn't been kind to many people, Tara. No. I'm thinking of unfriending I didn't even accept its friend request in the first place. Is everything going on in life and the way this year is panning out interfering with your ability to be happy? Is something stopping you from achieving your goals? Are you lonely in isolation, missing your old life? Or perhaps all of this is just making other stuff that you have to deal with even harder. We're both big believers in therapy and there is no better time than now to take care of your mental health. Better help is there for you, no matter where you are. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist that suits you. You can connect in a safe and private online environment. And you can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's professional counselling that produces real results, not self-help. You can communicate with your counsellor at any time. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. All without having to sit in a germy, uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counselling and financial aid is available. And it's a service that you can access worldwide. You can be communicating with licensed professional counsellors who have a broad range of expertise and specialise in areas such as depression, stress, anxiety, relationships and self-esteem. And anything you share is confidential. It's convenient. It's professional and it's very affordable. If you want to start living a happier life today, contact BetterHelp. As a Bloody Murder listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. That's betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. Join over 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counsellor that suits you. If you don't believe us, feel free to check out the dozens of positive testimonials on their website. We had feedback from a listener this week that she's been speaking to a BetterHelp counsellor and loving the results. Yeah, she said her marriage has never been better. Yeah, that made me and happy. That made me happy too. Hey baby, just is not going to do it all the time, is it? Well, you know what? According to some listeners, it seems to do the trick. So visit betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. That's betterhelp.com forward slash bloody murder. And now for the finale of the Book of Sam. Meanwhile, back at the crime scene, Signa Street and the shitty park at its end was awash with the flashing red and blue lights of police cars and ambulances. They'd all arrived to find taxi driver Peter Coe slumped in the driver's seat of his vehicle. He was dead. At 12.05am, outside a house in Victoria Street, a young constable found Sam's shoe. This clever copper thought it a significant find, and his beat was correct. Hell yes. Hell yes. Police started canvassing the neighbourhood, but most of the residents of Belgrove and Singer Streets in Preston had settled in for the night before the incident occurred. Most were rudely awakened from their slumber by a heavy knock on their door. No one knocks louder than cops. Open up, police. Hello? 53-year-old Des was still awake. He told detectives he'd been sitting in his backyard, sucking on a cigarette and sipping a glass of wine. The peace of the warm, still night was broken when dogs started barking, followed by some yelling in the street. He thought at first it was just drunk, raucous kids. After all, it was a Saturday night. Des went on to tell cops that he looked over his fence into the street and saw a man standing next to a yellow taxi. Seeing nothing out of order, Des went back to his durry and his booze. 
Another resident, 19-year-old Nina, told police that as she was opening her front windows because of the heat, she heard a car screech to a halt. She said, I heard a yelling noise with hoarseness. I've never heard a noise like it before. It was a mumbling tone, definitely male, like someone pleading. It was like someone was nervous and your voice gets loud, but it was like with a bit of authority as well. There was a jump in pitch, which I think was a different voice. The last voice was between a groan and a gurgle. There was dead silence afterwards. I looked at my boyfriend and we both said, what the fuck? Uh, I bet when the police asked Nina's boyfriend that he probably said, yeah, I heard some noise. Oh, right. Yeah, he probably couldn't analyse it. I kind of looked at that quote as though, you know, like people who are passionate about fine wine, like fanatics who swirl it in their glasses and sniff it. It's kind of like the way they describe wine. (laughs) No, Nina is the most thorough ear witness I've ever heard of. Oh, God, me too. Uh, She would have been good at those what's the secret sound radio competitions they used to do. Hmm. Nearby, another neighbour, Simone, had been watching a spot of telly. Her husband, Max, was in bed asleep. Simone heard a loud dog's bark and then a voice saying outside, Don't do it! Don't do it! She told police she peered out her window and could see a slow-moving taxi. Thinking it odd, Simone went outside where she saw a man walking next to the driver's door, moving his right arm sideways in a circular motion, moving his arm from side to side and then in toward the driver. She said the man looked young. She saw the taxi pick up a good bit of speed. Then she heard the driver call, help me, somebody help me. She said, when I heard that, I panicked. I just screamed for someone to get the police. Her cries woke up her husband, Max. Simone watched as Peter Coe's taxi rolled on, gently mounted the curb and came to a rest against a power pole. Now up and wide awake, Simone's husband, Max, dressed only in his underwear, said to her, what the bloody hell's going on? Australians like to fight crime in their underpants. It's like their favourite thing. It's a bit of a superhero throwback. Just get out of bed in your Reg Grundy and on you are fighting crime. Max then ran out to the taxi. Its front door was slightly ajar and its interior light was on. Max was horrified to find a bloodied Peter Coe, his neck gushing with blood out of two separate wounds. Peter was going into shock, but he was still breathing. Max asked him, Are you all right, mate? But Peter Coe didn't answer. He was not all right. Max turned back to Simone, yelling, Where's the ambulance? The man's dying. Max went back inside and put on his robe. By the time he came out again, police and an ambulance had arrived and found Peter Coe dead. Peter's meter had stopped at one second past 11.17pm, showing a fare of $4.90. In the top pocket of his blue silver top taxi shirt, police found $40 in notes. His wallet had $85 in it. A small plastic container with $14.10 in change was on the console. On the Monday morning following the murder, Ben went to school. Afterwards, he returned to his health and community services residential unit. One of the youth workers, an older woman, let's call her Barbara, overheard a heated conversation between Ben and Sam. Ben said to Sam, So I am getting the blame for what happened, am I? The following night, Barbara heard another phone conversation between Ben and Sam. Jeez, did she spend her nights with her ear pressed up to a glass in the room next to where the phone was? Well, it wasn't a job description. Oh, well, that's just, she's just hitting her KPIs then, isn't she? Well, that's right. During the call, Ben had a newspaper in front of him with the front page story about the murder of taxi driver Peter Coe. Ben told Sam, yeah, I'm looking at it now. I didn't take anything. 
I didn't get anything. Barbara had been following the media coverage of the murder and after reading the description of the suspect, she told a colleague, Oh, it matches Sam and Ben. I'm thinking, no, it can't be. After mulling it over, Barbara contacted the Homicide Squad. The Saturday after the murder, two detectives talked to Ben. He told them he'd been out that night, but denied any involvement in the murder of the taxi driver, although he admitted Sam and himself had taken a taxi and it may have been Peter Coe's cab. On his notes of the conversation, the detective wrote, Ben knows something. After the interview, Barbara asked Ben if everything was all right. He told her he was involved in the most serious thing someone could be involved in. Casting the next Batman movie? No, more serious. What? Barbara then, <laughs> Barbara then asked him, did you have anything to do with the taxi driver murder? Ben, like an offended giant sea clam, clammed up and said nothing and became visibly upset. When Barbara asked him what was wrong, he told her he had seen a friend of his sexually assaulted. When Barbara asked him for more details, Ben cracked the shits and stormed off. Barbara would later say of the incident, I believe Ben was about to go over the edge that night, maybe have a nervous breakdown. He had a total look of horror on his face. He cried so profusely and profoundly I had to cuddle him and hold him together. That reaction didn't fit with the sexual assault that had happened to somebody else. He said he was in a lot of trouble and asked what did a 25-year jail sentence mean? Did it mean life? That quote really highlights how young he is, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah, he's only 14, geez. Meanwhile, police had been rounding up the usual suspects, hauling dozens of wayward teenagers in and raking them over the coals. Police were encouraged when two brothers who lived not far from Belgrove Street told the police that they and four other youths were responsible. Police spent six long weeks investigating the story, but like that first lead in an episode of Law & Order SVU, it turned out to be a herring of the reddest kind. The brothers had been lying. Confessing to murders you didn't commit is a pretty dangerous hobby, I would think. Ah, seemed to work out okay for that shitheel Henry Lee Lucas. Yeah, he got a lot of attention and milkshakes out of it. Yeah. A few months after the brutal killing, in May 1996, a $10,000 reward was offered for information on the murder of Peter Coe. Andrew, not his real name, a 15-year-old boy with convictions for burglary and assaulting his mother saw the reward advertised in a newspaper. Andrew knew both Sam and Ben. On May 24th, after the local police visited him about some burglaries and arson, Andrew told them that he had information on the Peter Coe murder. Ah, trying to leverage info for a better deal, huh? Hey? sounds like it, eh? Andrew told detectives he did not like Sam because he had seen Sam kissing a girl that he liked. Andrew also told cops that he'd wired up his telephone to his stereo to tape conversations. Wily little bugger, isn't he? Andrew claimed to have Ben and Sam on tape admitting to Peter Coe's murder. Homicide Squad detectives took the cassette tape into evidence. Two hours later, Ben was arrested at his group home and taken into custody. Barbara, who had contacted the police three months earlier, sat with Ben in the back seat of the police car, holding his hand as a detective read him his rights. Ben was given a court-appointed lawyer. Ten minutes into his videotaped interview with detectives, Ben's father arrived and the interview was suspended. A detective bought Ben a Big Mac, fries and a Coke. Yum! <laughs> After scoffing down his favourite meal, Ben spilled the beans on the killing of taxi driver Peter Coe. 
At 10.24pm, he was charged with armed robbery and murder. Detectives were sent to the Croxton Park train station where they scaled the roof. There they found a white running shoe which matched the one found on the footpath near the murder scene. His beat was correct. It's, uh, we, I didn't say it for nothing. Hell yes. Later that night, Ben led police to the bloody Best Defence brand hunting knife lying under a bush in Preston. Surprised it was still there. Sometime after midnight, the police arrested Sam at his mother's house. Following legal advice, Sam told detectives he had nothing to say. He was charged with the armed robbery on January 31st and the murder of Peter Coe. Ben agreed to testify against Sam and pleaded guilty. He was sentenced to three years' detention. As part of his plea agreement, Ben supplied police with an 18-page statement. In it, Ben claimed Sam had told him that when the taxi accelerated, the knife had come back and cut the driver's throat, and the whole thing was an accident. He also stated that he had seen Jane wearing Sam's camel-coloured jacket with a stain on the front, and she told him it was Peter Coe's blood. When it came to Sam's trial, Ben was cross-examined for more than four hours by Sam's defence attorney, Wayne Tui. During this quite heated exchange, Ben admitted he had lied about the sexual assault he had told Barbara earlier. Barrister Wayne Tui also got stuck into the boy who supplied the taped confessions. Andrew, who was 15, unemployed and living with his mother... Hang on, the mother that he actually got arrested for, like... Amusing. Yeah, well, he also admitted to smoking marijuana. He also confessed to slashing his arms with knives when he got mad and secretly taping telephone conversations on his stereo between heavy metal songs. <laughs> Andrew told the court Sam and Jane had come to stay at his house on one night in May 1996 with another friend, Amanda. He said he did not like Sam because he knew Amanda liked him and Amanda had spurned Andrew's request to go out with him. He had bashed another boy because he had gone out with Amanda. He had also informed on this boy to the police. Oh, get your shit together, Andrew. If you love her so much, let Amanda live her life. Andrew said he had taped Sam and Ben talking about the murder in separate conversations after seeing the reward offered. His mother had burnt the Sam tape when Sam kept coming around and asking if he had made a tape. He said the tape he gave the police had Sam admitting he murdered him. After the lunch break, Andrew said it was Ben on the tape admitting to the murder. Ah, he must have had a 180-degree turn sandwich for lunch. Yum! Yum! (laughs) (laughs) Sam's defence barrister said to Andrew, You're telling lies! There was never any conversation with Sam. To which Andrew replied, Bull fucking shit! (laughs) He's got a really deep voice for a 15-year-old. He does, doesn't he? He almost sounds like he has a tracheotomy too. Bull fucking shit! (laughs) (laughs) Andrew told the court that during one of the breaks in the proceedings, Sam had come up to him and said, We're going to get you. There's no one to protect you now. When 15-year-old Amanda, a ward of the state since she was six and not interested in dating Andrew, took the witness stand to corroborate some of Andrew's testimony, she was wearing sunglasses. Outside, it was a typical Melbourne winter day, dark, grey and pissing with rain. Wayne Tui asked her, You haven't been smoking marijuana this morning, have you? She denied such a spurious accusation and told the court she had a medical reason for wearing the glasses. She then admitted that she had convictions for theft and willful damage. Amanda testified she'd told her social worker that Sam had confessed to her that he'd killed someone. Wayne Tui put it to her, I suggest to you that's a lie. Amanda came back with, 
When I suggest to you, you don't know shit. <laughs> Go, Mandy. Uh- I love Amanda. She's got a way with words and sunglasses. Her future's so bright she's got to wear shades. Well, probably not. The prosecution's next witness was Inez, a 14-year-old girl who was also in health and community services care. She gave a statement to the police that Sam had told her that he slit a taxi driver's throat. In court, she denied that he had said that. Wayne Tui then asked her, Let me remind you that you are under oath. Were you threatened by anyone today that if you didn't say Sam said these things, you would be charged with perjury? Inez replied with, I don't believe in God, so it doesn't bother me. Sam never said he committed armed robbery or murder. When redirected by the prosecution, she admitted to being good friends with Sam's mother. Sam's mother is good friends with a 14-year-old child? Interesting. Yeah, that's a funny one. During the trial, Sam's girlfriend Jane gave birth to a baby boy. She was 17 and Sam had just turned 14. New Daddy Sam was found guilty and sentenced to 13 years jail. After sentencing, Sam was told by Justice Cummins that the murder was gravely criminal conduct. Were you a fully mature adult, I would have sentenced you to a very lengthy term of imprisonment for this terrible crime. But you're a child, not a young adult, not a juvenile, but legally and factually a child. You shall spend the whole of the remainder of your childhood and adolescence in custody. These are precious and formative years, the freedom of which you have now lost. I don't know, did he ever have that much freedom? No, not really. (sighs) It appeared that society was about to slam shut the book of Sam. Sam's baby mother, Jane, told reporters outside the court that Sam is the sweetest person I've ever met. He is not going to come out of jail the same. He is going to come out worse. Yeah, they don't usually just frolic out of jail singing a jaunty tune and, and you know, being full of love and positive energy, do they? No, Tara, they don't. Statistically, Jane is right. Juvie Jail is criminal university. Almost 70% of offenders who go before the children's court will reappear in the adult system. They say rehabilitation is the primary aim of sentencing children, but it rarely seems to work. Sam landed in Eastern Hill, a higher security juvenile justice centre at Parkville in Melbourne. If you read the brochure of this juvie jail, it doesn't sound too bad. It has a swimming pool, exercise area, gym and jogging track. It has a brochure? (laughs) (laughs) Well, did you read the brochure? No, I just, I read about it. It, I read its website. (laughs) I like to think it has glossy brochures and they like drop them in people's mailboxes. Yeah, it gets five stars on Yelp. (laughs) That's what I heard. (laughs) Sam was put in a solitary cell containing a TV, shower and wash basin. He did have tea and coffee making facilities too. That doesn't sound too bad. Kate Legg, a journalist for The Australian, wrote an article about Sam entitled The Story of S, in which she spoke to Catholic nun Karen Donnellan, who volunteered at Eastern Hill. The nun described to her when she first came in contact with Sam. She said, His age was extraordinary, and that was part of the trauma for the whole institution because we'd never had to deal with that before. I heard that when he was five or six, he'd been put into state care and he'd gone out one night and tried to walk back home, which was 10 kilometres away. This is what resonates with us. Abused children will still want to get back to their abusive parents. It's all they have ever known, and as Kate Legg eloquently writes in her article about Sam, 
The tug of kinship, even within clans where violence or abuse is a daily occurrence, has a powerful overriding influence on children. Family lays the ground rules for patterns of behaviour, and in Sam's case, the experience was bruising. Sister Karen had doubts about the rehabilitation of Sam and went on to add, I would have to say that I started believing it was an impossible challenge. Sam hadn't shown remorse during his trial. He didn't believe he did it, and he exhibited that capacity of children to silo memories. But not everybody was ready to give up on Sam. Some believed the future was unwritten and began working in earnest on a new chapter of the Book of Sam. Our young murderer started working with a number of psychologists and counsellors over the next three years, and Sister Karen was surprised to see the change in him. Sam undertook courses aimed at short-circuiting impulsiveness and finding new ways of responding to anger and frustration. Table tennis. Shuttlecock. (laughs) Sister Karen said he gradually moved to an understanding of what he'd been involved in and what it had done to Peter Coe's family through having his own family. It seemed Sam was making some real progress. Though some didn't see it that way, one member of the youth parole board said... He gave me the creeps. I was never happy with him. I felt that he'd had so much trouble that it would be very difficult for him to break through. Two years into his 13-year sentence, Sam won an appeal and was granted a new trial. Something about Justice Cummins' instructions to the jury was suspect. Maybe it was because under existing laws, a person under 14 is presumed not to know the difference between right and wrong. The new trial was scheduled for May 1998, but in that time, Andrew, the boy who made the tape of the confessions, had died of a heroin overdose, and another witness retracted their statement, weakening the prosecution's case. Yeah, it really was only Ben's word against Sam in the end. The Crown decided not to proceed with the murder charge, and Sam pleaded guilty to manslaughter. He was sentenced to four years jail, with a minimum of two to be served. But having served 18 months behind bars while the case worked its way through the courts, he was eligible for release six months later. Ben had already been released. A year later, he was convicted of making and selling heroin and sentenced to another year in youth detention. Sam was now free and determined to turn his life around. He was ready to write a new chapter and he had a lot of people on his side. Victoria's Child Safety Commissioner, Bernie Geary, who spent 18 years working with young offenders, told media, Sometimes we're dealing with damaged backgrounds where the degree of difficulty is too great to overcome. But I've seen time and time again positive outcomes where kids develop good attitudes and skills. The system strives towards rehabilitation. You can't transplant empathy into a kid who has grown up with a lack of it as well as poor role models. That's why it's so important for these kids to have a champion. With his greatest champion, his baby mama Jane by his side, Sam completed several high school subjects and then studied at RMIT University. Afterwards, he secured a job at an insurance company. Sam and Jane invited sister Karen over to dinner to celebrate the news. Sam and Jane were now married and living together and had just welcomed a second child, another boy, into their family. It's so amazing that they stayed together and were, like, building a life. Sister Karen would later say of Jane, she was a fine young woman. She was able to give him strength and show him an alternative. He worked exceptionally hard to stay good and he was proud of the fact that he was making good. It sounds like Jane was making good for herself too. I mean, she'd had a messed up childhood as well. In the year 2000, Sam scored a very good white-collar job at a bank. 
Sam's role was reconciling the bank's trust and corporate accounts. For three years, things seemed to be going well, but in 2003, he got back in contact with his father, who was on the run for armed robbery. Under pressure from his father and other family members, Smart Sam devised an undetectable method of embezzling funds from the bank. In three years, he stole more than $1 million for friends and relatives, including his father and uncle. But as with most undetectable frauds, it was eventually detected. Sam's world came crashing down. His marriage to Jane also came to a sudden end. He had lost his champion. In 2008, Sam pleaded guilty to charges of fraud and money laundering and was sentenced to a minimum of two years and nine months without parole. The judge expressed some hope about his rehabilitation, saying, You are still only 26 years of age, and despite so much that has happened, strangely, you probably still fall within that relatively youthful category, which has well-known advantages on sentencing. You've shown considerable remorse, and despite the horrendous appearance of your prior convictions, that incident and your age at the time does not necessarily, in my view, demonstrate any intractable antisocial attitude. Now that you have severed ties with your father and his associates, there is no real reason to be pessimistic about your future. Before his trial, now single, 26-year-old Sam had moved in with a family who had a 13-year-old daughter. Just days before he appeared in court, Sam had a sexual relationship with this girl. Oh, for fuck's sake, that's rape. That is rape. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And I'm not excusing Sam's behaviour here, but I'm thinking him being sexually active at such a young age has contributed to this crime. I guess what I'm wondering is, was this considered normal behaviour to Sam? Yeah, look, possibly. As we know in Victoria, Australia, a person under 16 cannot consent to have, you know, sexual engagement with a person over 18. An alarming statistic from America's National Maternal and Infant Health Survey indicates that a whopping 40% of births to 14-year-olds were fathered by men at least five years older than the mother. I know this seems a bit off topic, but it just shows how rampant statutory rape is. Yeah. In the United States, there's around a 10 to 15% increase of psychiatric diagnoses occurring over a lifetime when there's a history of early sex with a person much older than themselves. Yeah, so there, there is a cause and effect here. This, this can damage people. Yeah, I mean, it, it's different though because Sam was in a sexual relationship with someone two years older than him who was also under 16. So it doesn't so much hark back to that. A 1995 study revealed that 50% of US teenagers have had sexual intercourse by the age of 16 and I would expect that age will be much lower these days. Oh uh, yeah well possibly it just depends on how you're divining sex. The penalty in Australia though it does vary slightly from state to state for sex with a child under the age of 16 by a person over 18 is a maximum of 10 years. Yeah so the law does take it quite seriously. One year into his sentence for the fraud Sam pleaded guilty to two counts of indecent acts with a child under the age of 16. The county court judge ordered a new non-parole period of five years. On sentencing, this judge had a different view than the last judge Sam encountered. He said, The chances of your rehabilitation are modest, given the very significant criminal convictions that you've now acquired. Although we can never give up on hope of your eventual rehabilitation, there is little before me to suggest there is any great likelihood of that. When sister Karen Donnellan heard the news, she was shocked. She said, I'm very sad about Sam. He almost made it. 
Sam was due to be released from a maximum security adult prison in 2013. We assume he's out now, but unfortunately the trail of Sam West has gone cold. But I'm sure the book of Sam is far from coming to its end. Let's hope he can write some new law-abiding chapters. Well, he has done it before for a while. Just stay away from underage girls and taxi drivers. Yeah. So this is interesting, Tara. In Kate Legg's article, The Story of S, she states, The psychologist who interviewed him prior to the fraud charges believes his final tumble from grace occurred because he still hungered for the love of his father. All the rehabilitation programs he'd done, all the counsel he'd received, all the prospects of financial and material gain by honest means couldn't in the end withstand the primordial tug of a family that had given him up at such a tender age. And then he engaged in sexual intercourse with a child. Yeah, he did. Sam's story is both heartbreaking and, well, just plain infuriating. Yeah, it really is. I'm quite fucking torn. I really wanted to like Sam. You don't? I don't know. I mean, obviously the murder was an appalling thing, but he seemed to be working on rehabilitating his life. Yeah, he kind of had me up until the whole statutory rape. Yeah, I'm in two minds too, Tara. But I guess that's what life's like. It's just lots of shades of grey. I'd be really interested to know what Sam's up to these days, though. Same here. He should write a book. (laughs) Yeah, he should. Well, what a story. Well, I have but one question for you. Yes? What is Aussie As? You'll never learn, will ya? Aussie As are tales of criminal stupidity and bloody legends with a quintessentially Australian flavour. Would you like to hear one? I would. This one I call Why You Shouldn't Do Meth, Part 977. On the 18th of July 2018, 27-year-old James Shearer had himself a fuck-ton of meth, a shit-ton of weed and a cheeky spot of ketamine before going on a day-long crime rampage in the ACT. According to ABC News, it began in Tuganong, where Jimbo, thinking to himself, fuck this walking down the street thing slow, unsuccessfully tried to steal a car. Vehicles one, Jimbo zero. Lacking the patience and probably the skill to break into locked cars, methed up Jimbo decided to take his shit show on the road, literally. Loitering by a set of traffic lights, sweaty knucklehead Jimbo tried to jump into the cars that stopped at the lights, much to the shock and displeasure of the people driving them. Determined Jimbo was seen holding onto the handle of a ute until it drove off and he fell arse over sweaty drugged out tits onto the road. Vehicles 2, Jimbo still zero. After several creepy and embarrassing attempts to carjack people, Jimbo was finally successful at pinching himself a van. Vehicles 2, Jimbo 1. I don't know if someone was driving the van at the time, but if they were, they scampered, which was a smart move because methed up Jimbo is not a good driver. For the next 8 kilometres or 5 miles, Jimbo drove like a maniac, mostly on the wrong side of the road, while careening through red lights at high speed. His fucked up road trip only came to a stop after he smacked bang into a truck. Vehicles 3, Jimbo won. Unfortunately, Jimbo's devil-may-care attitude to driving caused serious injuries to the driver of the truck and their passenger. Not cool, messed up Jimbo. Nah. For his next trick, messed up Jimbo tried to escape the scene of the crash by attempting to steal several more cars. That's not good news. The only thing worse than messed up Jimbo is messed up Jimbo on wheels. 
I know, right? Luckily, there were some Aussie battler bystanders at the crash site who were like, fuck you, Jimbo. They tackled him to the ground and held him there until the police came. Now, that should be the end of the story, shouldn't it? It is, isn't it? It is not. While he was in hospital recovering from the effects of drugs, Jimbo went apeshit bananas again. Not only did he growl, spit, bite and kick and go all shouty crackers at police as they tried to subdue him, but he also chucked a chair and grabbed a Glock pistol from the first of two officers sent to guard him. Then he fired several shots in the ER of the hospital. One of the shots pierced a water pipe in the ceiling, leaving Jimbo and the cops fighting it out under a sprinkler like they were dancing with you in the summer rain. Wet t-shirt contest. Woo! Woo! When Jimbo fronted up to the ACT Supreme Court, he faced a list of charges bigger than a baby's arm holding a pineapple. (laughs) According to the Daily Telegraph, Justice David Mossop was not impressed and said it was remarkable that Jimbo had not been shot and killed by the second police officer guarding him. He said it was to the credit of the officers involved that they wrestled the gun from methed up Jimbo and used a taser to incapacitate him instead of just giving him the double tap. In a victim impact statement, the second officer said he thought about shooting Jimbo, but then he thought about all that paperwork and decided just to run at him and tackle him to the ground instead. The officer went on to say that he didn't know whether he was dead or alive when he hit the ground. He's been shot at, wasn't he? Jimbo, (laughs) who has a criminal resume that includes drugs and domestic violence charges, says he has no memory of the shooting. Oh, I don't remember it. (laughs) Justice Moppet. Oh, not guilty then. You can't be held guilty if you don't remember it. That's not... Oh, yeah, thanks. (laughs) Thanks, I'll be going then. Bye. No, that's not... Can I borrow your car, Judge? That's not what Justice Mossop said. (laughs) Justice Mossop sentenced Jimbo to 11 years and six months jail. He'll be eligible for parole in May 2025. So, yeah, that might be a good time to uh, stop driving altogether. (laughs) Uh... Methed up, Jimbo. Um, So this brings us to the end of the episode. But before we go, we'd like to thank some people who took the time out of their busy, busy days to write us some good reviews. So thank you to... Callie Ander from the US. Another one there from XXL Historian from the United States. He liked my Steve Perry. He was right to like your Steve Perry. Should have been gone, knowing how I made you feel. (laughs) You know I'm going to have to listen to that again now. (laughs) Uh, We'd also like to thank Christina Allen. And our Facebook moderating team. We love our patrons, Tara, and in an attempt to show them how much we do, we've been holding these awesome monthly giveaways. It's a favourite part of my job. Oh, yeah, it's a pretty fun part. The winner of April's prize of the fabulous Studio Femme wireless earbuds is, drumroll please, maestro, Leah Heinrich. Yay! Congratulations, Yay! Leah. You're going to love these, Leah. With its wireless design and minimalistic charging case, Fem is a perfect match for any podcasting adventure. They are splash, rain and sweat proof, and they hold a total of 20 hours playback, six hours in a single charge. Fem also introduces a four-microphone system and new touch controls for an enhanced sound quality experience. It also features the latest Bluetooth 5.0 technology, compatible with iOS and Android, and up to 10 metres of range. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10! 
perfect for murder stories. Stories. For bloody stories, murder. Stories, sorry. Stories. Stories. Uh, stories. <laughs> for bloody murder listeners, Studio are offering free worldwide shipping and fifteen percent off with the code Bloody Murder One Five at checkout. Visit studio.com for details. Congratulations, Leah. Yeah, big time. For our May prize, we're giving away a pair of Bloody Murder leggings. Look sexy and dangerous cool with Bloody Murder all over your walking arms. Over your walking arms. (laughs) What the fuck? (laughs) For a chance to win, be a Bloody Murder patron at a level above $5. Now, we've had a bunch of bloody new legends join our Patreon program. So thank you to Kate the Cat Meehan. Matt Stapleton. George Evatt. Davis Rodskalm. He did that uh, Hitman True Crime Nerd Time recently, right? That's right. Also, Michelle Goldsmith. The most lovely Angela Santos. Did she ask you to put that in? No, I put that in. (laughs) I like Angela. I know, we know her. I was just being a dick. Alistair McGarry. I know that sounds like a Polish name, but you're wrong, Tara. It's actually Scottish. Also, Christopher Hallibone. Terry Stafford. Hey! Hey, Terry. He's cool. He's a wrestler. And Ronica Melvin, not Ron Dika. I would never say that, Ronica. And uh, she is the fluffy chocolate lady baby herself. And the delightful Andrea Fender. Do you know how to say the name of her awesome smelling company? Sacrabella. Yes. Thank you so much, each and every one of you. We love you desperately. If you would like to support us, visit our website. Or if you just want to buy us a drink, there's a PayPal donate button there too. Who's buying the drinks this week? Barney? Well, Tara, we have had two very generous donations. Jessica Cole shouted us a few rounds. Thank you very much, Jessica. And so did Alison Schaefermeyer. Thanks, Alison. And she wrote, Tara and Barney, good on you for the webby win. This is my shout, mates. Though I have travelled to Australia on four different occasions, I'm certainly not fluent in the slang. So I did ask an Aussie friend of mine what to say when one buys a round of drinks. This year, the chat's on me, mate. Yeah. Crikey. Thank you so much for the shout, Alison. Yeah, we found out a few days ago that we're honorees in the Webby Awards, which the New York Times called the Internet's highest honour. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, uh, that was a nice surprise. Yeah. I've been Barney Black. And I've been Tara Saraban. And this is Bloody Murder. Please don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts or our Facebook page. And of course, rate and subscribe because it really does help us. You can follow us through our Facebook page or join our miraculous Facebook group. Don't leave that pause in. You can follow us. <laughs> I will you can now. follow us on our Facebook page or join our miraculous majestic Facebook group. On Twitter, we're at Bloody Murder Pod, and on Instagram, we're Bloody underscore Murder underscore Podcast. Check out our website, BloodyMurderPodcast.com, for news, galleries, more episodes, and links to our threadless merchandise. Thanks for sticking around, and we'll be back next week. Goodbye and adios. And keep kicking against the pricks. So I was walking pot this morning and it was a really windy, rainy, freezing cold day uh, and I stopped into the supermarket just to get a few things for dinner and stuff. And while I was there, I was like, oh, I may as well pick up a bottle of wine for later. But when I got to the checkout, the guy went to me, oh, oh, it's not nine o'clock yet. Uh, I, I, I can't sell you this wine. And then he looked at me like he was pretty sure I was going to fight him about it. 
I mean, I just walked the dog in the rain. I looked like someone who probably was desperate for a 9am glass of wine and would fight him about it. Um, but I kind of just <laughs> let it go. I was like, what time is it? And he went 8.55. So I was like, oh, okay. And then he went to me after I paid. He's like, well, look, if you're still in the area, if you want to come back, I'll put it aside for you. And just on the dot of nine, if you come in, I can sell it to you then. Did you ask him what you were going to drink on your walk home? <laughs> no, I kind of was like, oh, I'm walking the dog and it's raining, um, but thanks. <laughs> Clearly, Isolation Tara looks like someone who drinks wine before 9am. Oh, <laughs> That's what I'm getting from like that. that. Hey, do you remember your Aussie as you did a couple of weeks ago about that wombat? What was he called? He called Mr. Bat. It was Mr. Bat. That was last episode. I had a dream about that wombat a couple of nights ago. Oh my god, you dreamt about Mr. Bat. Was it a sexy dream? It was not a sexy sexy dream about a wombat. No, he was my pet and he'd follow me everywhere and he'd jump in the car with me and we'd go for rides and then (laughs) I'd open the door and say, come on Mr. Bat and he'd kind of roll out because he's, you know, chunky. Yeah, they're not good at jumping either, those little little tubby bastards. Yeah, little tubby bastards. And he'd come inside and the cat didn't like him at first. Lazlo didn't like Mr. Bat and he'd jump on him but, but then Mr. Bat would just roll on him. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and he'd go, Row! but then they were best friends and they'd sit on the couch together and cuddle up together. Hang on, would they and sit he... on your $50 uh, cat sofa together? No, no one sits on that. Not That's even not in your sitting. dreams does your cat use that? No. <laughs> <laughs> not even in your wildest dreams. No, no way. No way. Oh, well. <laughs> I wish Mr. Bat was real. Well, Mr. Bat's real, but you don't have him with you. He lives in Cradle Mountain no, I don't. Now, in Tasmania. Yeah, he does. That's right. Sexing up all the lady wombats. Woo! Hey, Woo. baby, I'm Mr. Bat. Where did he go? You went away for a second. You just oh, vanished just... into that hellscape that you have behind you for our Skype recording today. Oh, you've got no arms. You've got no arms. Where are they? Regenerate them. Oh, they came back. Oh, no, they're gone. <laughs> Why do you have like a, a full-on flaming hellscape behind you for today's skyping? I don't know. I thought it was fun. Yeah, <laughs> nothing says fun like a full-on oil painting hellscape. But uh, yeah. Well, the other fun. well the other reason was it was pretty cold, and I thought all that fire might warm me up. Is it working? It's just not really. Yeah, it's beanies inside weather, isn't it? It really is. I can I can feel my toenails. What? How do they feel? They feel damn cold. Yeah, I thought you might go there. <laughs> uh, yeah, and my heater is so loud. Yeah, our so heater only works on. in the lounge room. So the bedroom is nah. always cold as a witch's tit. <laughs> Colder than a well digger's ass, wrapped in a witch's tit. <laughs> Eaten by an Eskimo. Eaten by a snowman. At the Gower Street taxi rank in Preston, they selected the driver. They did the driver. That was going to do it all in baby talk. That's what it sounds like. Oh, right? no, I hate that. I Everyone know hates you hate that. it. Oh, sexy bunny, you don't like my baby talk. Why? Wait, can you do Russian baby talk? I don't think I can do Russian baby talk, but maybe I can, bunny. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck that was, but it needs to go back into the hole it crawled out of. Oh, really? It's sealed up. Pour concrete into that hole. 
<laughs> you gotta see that seal that shit up tight. All right. <clears throat> Mostly these uh, these social distancing recording sessions are just Barney and I giving each other the rude finger over Skype. <laughs> You're lucky it's cold today or I'd show you my nipple. Sorry? Oh, God, he's rubbing his nipples. Why do I even look at you while we're recording? What is wrong with me? <laughs> and I'm going to stop. A sergeant and two constables from Heidelberg Police Station were returning from a... Plub, a plub flackless. A plub, plub fracas, flackus. A plub flackus sounds flaccid, and I think I like it. Oh, you're weird. I know that. Tell me something I don't know, champ. A friend of mine on Facebook who hardly ever posts on there actually said today, um, "Oh, my girlfriend got up and she was freaked out because she thought the dog was copping up a furball, but it was actually just my fart." I was like, how do you fart oh. to make it sound like a dog coughing up a furball? Apparently his, yeah. his anus does a lot of impers- like impressions. It does coughing. He has quite the repertoire, could... according to his girlfriend. Oh, well, that's incredible. Yeah, I'm just uh, telling we you. We should get so him on as a guest. You your fart game because I think you might have some competition. Mm, no. Oh, you're cocky, aren't you? You're cocky about the fart game. You don't think anyone could that's come right. close. You're the champion. You'll always be the champion. That's right. Moving his arm from side to side and then in toward the driver. She said the man looked young. Wasn't either of us then, was it? <laughs> oh, it's probably me. I can be <laughs> mistaken for a 13-year-old boy. Really? You sit, I you wear sit, 13-year-old boy pants. You're sitting there with your, um, with your little Papa Smurf beard talking about how young you look, how you could look like a 13-year-old <laughs> to some uh, eyewitness. Ah, uh, you know, this beard could be fake. Your beard. Hmm. <laughs> it comes off. Yeah, it's made of marshmallows and bad intentions. I like your butt. Mm, actually, it's not a not a bad description. I'll pay that. He is a bowler. <laughs> Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 